uh, I, grew, I grew up going to church. My parents brought me to church, uh, you know, and, uh, and so that was a normal part of my upbringing. Now, later on, I completely turned away from church uh, and a relationship with God. But growing up, I remember uh, that, that as I would go, whether it was uh, Sunday school, whether it was sitting in in uh, the main gathering uh, and and. Uh, and going to different events, I can, I can remember that a lot of the things that were spoken uh, and a lot of the ways that they were spoken about, whether it's baptism, uh, communion, whether it's uh, reading your Bible or, or praying or, or worship or giving, I, I know that it was kind of oftentimes portrayed in a way that you already know what that is and you should be doing it. And, and, and I don't know how many times uh, I heard, just go read your Bible. And how many times uh, people go, where? How do I start? What does that look like? How do I grow in my understanding of it? Uh, is this a daily thing? Uh, prayer, all these things, and, and, and communion, right? And, and, and depending on where you've been, where you've gone to church, communion can look like a bunch of different things, amen? Uh, I mean, I've worked at four different churches, and all four churches did communion differently, and, and so for, for some of us, we come into this space and here we offer communion weekly and, and, and probably for a lot of us, we just see a lot of other people doing it. So what do we do? We just join in, right? Because there's one thing that's very clear. Whenever you're sitting in a crowd, you do not want to stand out. Like you just don't. And so we typically fall in line with what other people are doing, and, and I've seen this in communion, uh, in, in baptism. Uh, uh, many of us were just told, go get baptized, uh, and, or, or in some of us were even told to be a part of this church. You have to be baptized. And, and so all of these, these things, these words, uh, these, these rhythms that we hear and read about in Scripture, we, we come to them through this lens of confusion oftentimes. But we also don't feel like we have permission to ask the difficult questions. And, and so what do we do? And so I, I feel like this is a really important series for us. This is a really important series for maybe some of you that have been, maybe even saved for like 40 years, and yet the rhythms of your life don't reflect scripture. Um, or maybe you're completely brand new to faith, or maybe you don't even know if this faith thing is for you, uh, and, and, and you just have a lot of questions. You've heard a lot of these phrases and words used, and you go, what does it really mean? And so we're going to unpack that uh, in the next uh, four weeks here. And so uh, today, what I want to talk about is communion. And one of the common things that you're going to see as we approach these different topics is there's a threefold connection that every single one of them have. The one is a connection to God. So regardless of the topic, you're going to see the connection to God emphasis. The second is uh, a connection to your calling. To, to what God wants you to do with this, to, to how he's wired and created you and gifted you. And then third, you're gonna see a connection to community. You see these things all throughout scripture when it comes to the rhythms that we are to have as Jesus followers. So uh, when it comes to communion, communion celebrated um, in, in Christian churches around uh, the world. And so we ask, so what is it? Why is it celebrated in so many different ways? Which church is doing it exactly correct, right? And is it ours? 
Um, and, and, and so here, like I said, we, we take communion each uh, and every week, and, and, and many of us don't know why, uh, but it seems like a good thing, so, so we do it. But why is it an essential life rhythm as a follower of Christ? Why? And, 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 and the other thing we need to know is in Scripture, we see communion, it's called the Lord's Supper, it's called the Lord's Table, it's called communion, cup of blessing, uh, the breaking of bread. Um, in the early church, it was called the Eucharist, or, or it was also called giving thanks. Um, and, and we see communion being initiated by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not include uh, this, this specific uh, instance. And then we also see Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 speak specifically to it, but he's correcting people for doing it in an incorrect way. And so let's go to Matthew 26 uh, as Jesus initiates communion. In Matthew 26, verse 26, this is the night before Jesus is going to go to the cross. This is the night before his death. He says this, Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Okay, so, so this is the evening uh, before Jesus' death. Uh, we call this dinner the Last Supper. Uh, it's very well known. And what are they doing uh, that evening? They're, they're celebrating the Passover. Okay, the, the Passover, which, which had uh, been initiated in ancient Israel. And, and the Passover meal's purpose was to remember and celebrate Israel's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. And so verse 26, it tells us that Jesus is actually presiding over this meal, uh, which, which is uh, something that would happen as they would celebrate uh, the Passover. And, and, and he does everything you're supposed to do. He breaks the bread, he blesses it, and then typically the presider over the meal would, would say something like this. This is the bread of the affliction uh, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. And we eat this bread and we remember the suffering of our ancestors. And we eat unleavened bread to remind us that they had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that there wasn't even time for the bread to rise. They suffered so that we could be delivered. And so that's the image, that's the picture here. And Jesus is doing everything he's supposed to. He blesses the bread uh, according to tradition. He breaks it, then he distributes it. And then he says something that I wasn't there, but it had to be absolutely shocking. He hands him the pieces of bread, and then he says, this is my body. Now, if you're in the room, one of the disciples, you probably at that point put the bread down, right? And just go, huh? Ooh, time out. What, what's happening? Right? And, 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 and so all of a sudden he's saying something that they've never heard before. And what Jesus was saying there is, I'm going to suffer so that you can be delivered. See, the Exodus event, it was a picture of what? Of, of God's salvation for his people. But now Jesus is telling his disciples in this intimate room, he says, there's an even greater rescue. 
The first Passover, that was eaten the night before uh, the Israelites were going to be rescued and released from slavery in Egypt. But now Jesus uh, is having this Passover meal the night before another liberation, a liberation from slavery uh, and death uh, that comes from sin. And he's making this just tremendous statement here that his death is the way to victory. He's saying, I've come to suffer for you. And and, and while bread tells us about the significance uh, of Jesus' death, the cup tells us what his death accomplishes. Uh, If you look back in Matthew 26, verse 27 there, uh, it says, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Right? So they're putting down the cup at that point. Right? Again, and, 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 and Jesus is taking him back. He's, he's not falling in line with tradition here, and, and they're trying to understand what he is saying. And, and what we know is, is in the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system, it called for regular sacrifices by priests where the blood of animals was shed on behalf of people's sins so that they could experience the forgiveness of sins. And what Jesus is saying here to them and to us is that his blood will save us. It's by his blood that he will save us. He he says that his blood is poured out, it says, for many. His blood is poured out for many. So there's a substitution that it's talking about here, isn't it? Uh, The Greek preposition means on behalf of or instead of. And so Jesus's blood is poured out instead of yours and mine. So, so, so there's bread, there's, there's the cup, but what was the main course in the Passover meal? I, I don't know. It was the lamb. There was a lamb. See, God delivered the people out of Egypt by what? He was sending these plagues, and they progressively got worse. And the very last plague was the angel of judgment who passes over the land uh, was going to strike down all the firstborn uh, children. And yet the Hebrew people were told to what? To have a feast and the night before they're to slay this lamb and they're to smear the blood of the lamb above the doorpost so that the judgment of God would pass over them. And that is where we get the term Passover from. But in Matthew 26 here, as we're reading this, you read it and, and you go, well, where's the lamb? He's not mentioning the lamb here. And, and as Christians who celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, who celebrate communion, and we've got the communion elements here in the front and the back of the room, you're like, where's the lamb? Right? Some of you are like, no, I've never asked that. Well, you should, okay? <laughs> where's the lamb? And you guys, the answer is in the blood of Jesus. See, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming uh, toward him on this specific day in John chapter 129, he says, he, he looks at him and he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he says, as soon as he sees 
sees Jesus. And, and, and so when Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, my blood is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, I will be slain so that you do not have to be slain. The forgiveness of, of our sins, it comes through the, the, the blood of Jesus. It's what reconciles us to God. It's through his blood that you and I are reconciled to a perfect and holy God. Because remember, all of us have this sin issue, this sin condition that separates us from him. And he says, by my blood, you will be reconciled to God. And that is why it's called the blood of the covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's the picture. That's the symbolism. That's the imagery when we talk about the cup, when we talk about uh, the bread. And then Paul gives some specific directives when celebrating or partaking in communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he, and he uh, really speaks in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. We're going to only read 23 through 29. But to kind of bring you into the setting there, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems, a lot. One of the problems, and, and it was actually, you know, a lot of our problems in the church world, they come from initially good things, which is really sad, isn't it? Um, but they had what they called a love feast that they had attached with communion. And in this love feast, uh, they would invite all these people and these people that, that were poor, uh, that didn't have enough food and all of that. Great heart, great idea, right? Very generous thing. And, and so they would, they would share of the meal. They would bring their food. Everyone would get to eat. And it would be this moment, this time of celebration and that. And then they would take communion together. What the church in Corinth was doing and, and, and why Paul writes this, uh, and if you read all of that chapter, you go, he's not happy. He's angry. Um, it's because what they were doing is people were bringing their food and then they weren't sharing, right? They were that kid in the lunchroom who had always the best lunches and you're like, hey man, I'll trade you. No. Um, and, and so people were, were leaving the, the love feast they were, they were leaving starving. They were hungry. And so the wealthier people were excluding people, the, the very people that, that, that they should have been caring for and, and loving on and, and extending grace to. And so they're not sharing. And then second, they were getting drunk. Yeah, this is like church potlucks gone wild. <laughs> I mean, it's nuts, right? I mean... I've heard of church potlucks happening like that, but I've never seen one. And, uh, and, 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 so, and, so, and so Paul is like infuriated at what is happening. So he writes to them. And within this, he gives us some very specific instructions when it comes to communion. So in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. Okay, so once again, Paul is writing in response to what uh, is happening. And, and, and we see that Paul, first and foremost, reiterates what Jesus said when he first instructed it, when he first initiated it. And, and, and what we see here is, uh, is, is Paul saying that the Lord's Supper should be celebrated often. Why? Because it puts the death of Jesus at the center of your mind and your heart. Okay, so, so one of the reasons we do it weekly here is because communion, like nothing else, it puts the death of Jesus at the center of your mind and of your heart. Okay, and, and as early as Acts chapter 2, we see early Christians recorded as, as breaking bread, uh, having communion together. And so communion wasn't just some ritual produced by later Christians. Uh, no, it was something instituted immediately by Jesus, and it's been celebrated ever since. And, and, and Jesus told us why we celebrate it. Remember, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and what I love is how the bread and, and whether it's juice or wine, whatever, they're, 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 they are this tangible, visible reminder of Christ's love. And so rather than just simply saying, remember, Jesus gave us a reminder. So we take it together to stimulate in our hearts remembrance of the person and the work of Jesus. And, and to not do that while we take it is to take it in an unworthy manner. And we recognize that this is, just like all of these other rhythms that define us as Jesus followers, this is not like optional. This is a command. This is a command. And I love how it says, in remembering in doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And what I love about that is there is this, um, there is this time when, when we take communion together where, where you're reflecting on what was done, what was accomplished, but then there's a, a looking towards, right? There's this future component where we're to take this in anticipation of what? His return. So we're reflecting on his death, on the sacrifice, on the cost, and yet we're in the midst of celebrating the victory and looking towards the day when he returns. And so we are to reflect or to remember. Uh, there's a seriousness as we approach uh, communion uh, because there's a worthy and an unworthy way to take it. We're to examine ourselves. We're not to just get up because everybody's doing it. We're to examine, where is my heart at? Where, where is my relationship with Jesus at? Where, where, the sin issues that we all have, are, are, have I confessed those or am I still living in that? Have I dealt with that? We're to test our motives to make sure that we're taking it for the right reasons. And we see that failure to do so brings about a divine discipline. Later, after that, he starts talking about the discipline of God on them for making a mockery of communion. And so it's not something we just flippantly do. Guys, communion doesn't, it doesn't save you. It doesn't secure your salvation. It doesn't turn into Christ's body. And you guys, for, for us, uh, I, I know for us that, that call this our church home and, and do this weekly, it's really important that the frequency that we do it doesn't drift into ritualism. We have to guard ourselves from that. 
We're to look to Jesus and his return, and we're to do it within the context and the framework of community. And, and what I've experienced with communion, and I know so many of you the same, it, like nothing else, confronts me with where I'm at with Jesus. It just does. And that's why I like it weekly. It's because I know I need it. Honestly, I need that daily, amen? To be confronted and re be reminded of that. And that then brings us into uh, baptism. Baptism, you know, you can't, you can't have a conversation about either of these things without first remembering what they represent and what they symbolize. You guys, you can't, you can't talk about the significance of baptism if you, if, if you don't understand the significance of the cross. If you don't understand the significance of Jesus going to the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, and then resurrecting from the dead to a new life, having victory over sin and death, you will not understand baptism and the symbolism of baptism if you don't understand that that's where it comes from. So we can't separate the two, okay? Um, and, and, and where do we see, uh, you know, baptism being initiated, being taught? Um, we see it being taught by Jesus. And if you'll turn a couple pages over to Matthew 28, we'll see. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, a section of scripture that many of us are familiar with, where Jesus is essentially telling his disciples uh, these these. Um, these purposes that he has for them as they carry on his message as he's about to ascend to heaven, as he is about to leave uh, them. And, and, and so in Matthew 28, 19, it says this. Jesus says to his, his followers, his disciples there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're really good. We see that and we know the command. And we're like, all right, I am to, I'm to make disciples. Like, like that is part of the mission. But then we see this, and we tend to ignore it a little bit. It says, make disciples of all nations, and then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the, the thing we love to highlight here is that the church, uh, the people of God, are commanded to be disciple makers, we're commanded to make disciples uh, across the known world, right? All over the globe. Um, but what we also see is connected to that, not excluded, not disconnected, is this command that says, not only are you to make disciples, but you are to baptize them. You are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a command of Jesus along with making disciples until he returns. And, and, and we see this all throughout the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as Peter is preaching the gospel, he says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And, and, and so what, what does baptism represent? What does it demonstrate? What is it? What, what isn't it? Well, Baptism expresses in a symbolic uh, in, in, in a special way, in a public way, it expresses the union that we have with Christ in his death and resurrection. In fact, in Romans chapter six, verses three and four, uh, this is what it says. It says, and this is Paul, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's beautiful, right? Um, and, and, and in the wider context of, of Romans, we see that water baptism isn't the means of being united to Christ. That's really important because some people believe baptism is what saves you. Okay, the rest of Romans helps us see that, that no, it, it, it's faith alone and grace alone. And, 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 and so faith is the means by which we are saved and brought into uh, union with Christ, but we show and we symbolize that faith with baptism. Okay, so, so faith unites us to Christ. Baptism symbolizes publicly that union. Um, I get to do a lot of weddings, and I'm doing one next weekend. And it's outside, so I'm a little nervous about the allergies. But uh, one of the things that, that, that you do is you have the ring vows. With this ring, I thee wed. Now, they're not magically married by the ring. Okay? Praise God, because I lost my ring like four months ago. And some of you have lost it. You've never found it. This is like your eighth ring. And, um, and it was a bummer. Right before my 15-year anniversary, I lose it, you know. Um, but I was reminded by my wife when I was looking everywhere for it and mad at myself, trying to blame the kids, but couldn't do that. Um, I blamed everybody else. And uh, I was out of options, so it was me. And so, but I was just reminded, like, <laughs> my wife, you know, that doesn't really mean anything to me. And, and I was just reminded that this ring is not the covenant I made to my wife. It was those covenantal words before the Lord that I made to my wife. That was the union. That was when it was sealed. This, this just symbolizes that. It's a ring. It's a circle. It has no beginning or end. It's a, it's a symbol of an unending commitment that I'm to make to my bride to reflect the love of Christ. And so this is just a symbol of, 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 of a decision, of a covenant I've already made to my wife. It doesn't replace it. And, and, and I can lose it and still be married. Amen. But it, it, and guys, in a, sim, in a similar way, that's what baptism is with faith. Okay, that's, that's, what, it, that's what it represents. That what it, that's what it reflects. Baptism portrays what happens spiritually when you receive Jesus. Your old self, your old self. And we all have an old self. You may still be in that old self right now, but we all had it, that, that old self that what? You were leading, right? You were the Lord and Savior of you. You were the one who determined what you wanted to do. You were the one that lived in opposition to God. You were the one that rebelled against what he wanted you to do. And, and, and so it reflects and represents the old you. But, but, but then uh, we see the new you, and, and that's that picture, right? The picture of the old you going down, being buried uh, underneath the surface of the water, and then coming out, right? Because we don't hold people under. Like, you know, like when we watch people get baptized, you're going to see them come up, right? Unless they get raptured, which would be amazing. But, 
uh, they're going to come up, right, out of the water, and that symbolizes what? The new you, the new self, the new identity that has been given to you by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you come up out of that water, and it's the symbol of my submission to a perfect and holy God, and from that moment on, it's the symbol of I do not live for me anymore. I live for him. And I get to live in light of that victory. And, and it's, the, it's just the perfect symbol and expression of what Christ uh, did for you and for me. And, and, and so we believe this expression of union with, with Christ in his death and resurrection, it happens by being immersed in the water. That's why we immerse people in the water. And, and we believe scripture leads us to that conclusion uh, as well. When you think of the picture of the burial and the rising up, uh, the very word baptism uh, in Greek, it means to dip or immerse. And, and most scholars agree that, that this is the way the early church practiced baptism. Okay? Uh, and, and we see scripture kind of leading us in that direction as well. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through, through 38, uh, there's this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, uh, this well-respected, high-level political figure, and he's reading scripture and he doesn't understand it. And God miraculously sends Philip and, and he invites Philip into his chariot. And, 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 and so Philip ends up sharing the gospel with this guy in his chariot. And that's why you should always share with your Uber or your Lyft drivers. And, 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 the, and the Ethiopian eunuch is like, stop the chariot. There's water. What holds me back from being baptized? And Philip, nothing. And they go, Right? We see uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 3, 23. It talks about where he chose to baptize people was a place where it says there was plentiful water. Okay? Enough water for you to go down him. And so that's, that's what we do. And then when we take them under, we do this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? When Jesus says, do this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, why, why do we say that? Okay. Well, we say that by acknowledging that that cannot happen. That salvation cannot occur without God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen apart from that work. I can give you the best gospel presentation of my life. You can share your heart out with, with other people and your kids. And at the end of the day, it's got to be a work of God in that person's life for them to respond and so when we take them under and we're declaring in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we're saying, God, this is for you. This is because of you. And, 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 and we celebrate your work. Okay? And, and so we declare that when, when we're doing that. And so if you're getting baptized today and you hear us say that, it's not a, a potion. It's not a spell. It's, it's we want to be very clear why. We want to be very clear to you. And we want, we want to be reminded ourselves, right, that this is a work of God. It's a work of God. And, and since baptism is an expression of faith, we here only baptize believers. Okay, our, our understanding of the New Testament is that the meaning of baptism is, as I shared earlier, an expression of faith. And so that's why we here baptize, uh, we don't baptize unbelievers or infants here at, when I say here, at Ecclesia. Um, that's why we don't do that. And, and there's uh, several scriptures that help inform us in why we, uh, why we don't do that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, 
Paul says this. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so, so Paul speaks about uh, circumcision here, and I'm not gonna unpack that for you. I think we're all old enough. If we're not, good luck with that conversation in the car. But Paul, Paul speaks of this, and, and he says, made without hands. Did you catch that? Made without hands. Hand. So, so circumcision today uh, has a meaning for the Christian that's not this physical act. It's a spiritual act where, where Christ removes that old sinful nature, that sinful body, and he makes us new. And we see this synonymous with the new birth, which he speaks about as baptism in verse 12. And so the image of this spiritual circumcision is connected with the image of baptism. He says, you were circumcised. And then he says, having been baptized. So the old body of of flesh that was cut away in conversion, you died and you rose again in baptism. And so just as in the Old Testament, uh, men were circumcised to signify their membership in the Old Covenant people of God, in the New Testament, people are baptized to signify membership in the New Covenant people of God. Now, that's led many, many Christians to assume that since circumcision was given to the male children of the people of the Old Covenant, baptism should be given to the male and female children of the people of the New uh, Covenant. But uh, we run into some issues there textually and uh, covenantially. Um, and, and when I say this, what we're not talking about is do we baptize children. Uh, what we're more talking about is this age of understanding. Are you tracking with me? So, so the age of understanding is, a, 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 there's a difference between a child, I have a four-year-old, and I have a 10-year-old, okay? Uh, actually, he's nine. Mm. Uh, the, the nine-year-old, <laughs> I can just see my wife just shaking her head. Uh, the, the, the nine-year-old, uh, he understands. In fact, he got baptized. Our four-year-old, if I said, do you want Jesus? Yep. Pray this prayer. Okay. Does he understand, though, the gospel? Does he understand his sin? You know, uh, uh, that nature, that, that Christ had to go to the cross? For? No, he doesn't understand. So what we're talking about here when we speak to kids, or and, and I should probably specify, like infants, is we're, we're talking about they don't have an understanding yet of, of this decision. They don't have an understanding of what it means uh, by uh, faith. And, and so when he's talking about uh, this uh, textually and covenantially, uh, it doesn't work for, for like an infant. He says this in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. And then he says this, through faith, through faith. See, the words through faith here are so critical for us. So Paul says that when you come up out of the water, signifying being raised with Christ, this is happening through faith. He he demonstrates the same way of thinking in Galatians chapter three. In Galatians chapter three, verse 26, he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so we become sons of God through faith and no other way. We're sons and daughters of God through faith. But then he says, he says this word for, and he's connecting this way of becoming a son and daughter of God with baptism. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, he says, have put on Christ. Now, that explanation there for the, with the word for, it only makes sense if baptism is understood as an act of faith. And so baptism without faith was, was like this inconceivable thought to Paul. And, and, and so when we see this, this shift uh, happening in redemptive history from the old covenant to, to the new covenant instituted through Jesus, uh, we, we, we see from circumcision to baptism, there, there's a shift from this ethnic focus on Israel and only males being given the sign of membership into the old covenant people of God. We see now a spiritual focus on the church of all nations, both male and female, being given the sign of membership as the people of God through Baptism. Because membership, and I use that term loosely, in in the new covenant, to be a part of the the new covenant people of God, this isn't about a physical birth. You can't be physically birthed into that. It's about a spiritual birth. And that new birth only happens by the word of God. Amen? Amen. And, and that's why I love how First Peter, how, how he puts it. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, uh, this is what he says. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You guys, baptism is woven together with the people of God. And since the local church uh, is an expression, we're to be an expression of the people of God, baptism is connected to the local church. They belong uh, together. And so what we see here is baptism uh, was commanded by Jesus. It was universally administered uh, to, uh, to Christians entering into the early church. And it was an expression of saving faith. And so... Whenever someone receives Jesus here, and in the minute, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus. But whenever someone receives Jesus here, that's the first thing I say. Go get baptized. Go get baptized. Why? Because that's what Jesus said. That's what we see all throughout the New Testament. And, and, and if someone's been baptized, maybe as, as an infant or, or before they even knew what they were doing or understanding, and that happens and has happened to a lot of people, or maybe you were baptized in an occult, which I know some of you in this room were. Uh, some, and and, and what's, what, it's, it's crazy. Some of the stories I hear when it comes to baptism, I hear stories all the time, and, and it and terrifies me. It angers me. Uh, when people are told, well, uh, I got baptized in this church and they said uh, it, it, it only works if it's this church. Like, 
oh, they got the monopoly on baptism? Like, who, you know, like, like and, 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 so, and so people have literally been told, some of you have been told, like, if you're not baptized in this church, it does not count. It's not, you're not saved. We, 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 I hear that too often. Okay, so, so that's something that, that, so some people, they're like, man, I was forced into it. I didn't really have a choice or, or I was just told you have to do this. And I didn't really know what I was doing. Or for some of us, man, it was, be, it was before we even knew or understood what was happening. And, and since then, maybe Jesus has become real to you. You understood and knew what the gospel was and you said, I received that for myself. This isn't my parents. This isn't anybody else's faith. This is my faith and I submit and I surrender my will to a perfect and holy God and I receive him as my Lord and Savior. And, 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 and some of you have done that since then and you're like, Steve, can I get baptized? I really wanna do it now because I've stamped that. I, I, I know, I, I've made that decision. And you know what we say? Yes. Oh yeah. Get out there and make that public. He calls us, he commands us to make our faith public. Our faith was never designed to be a private thing. And so we do it here at the church. Uh, you guys, not because if you don't get baptized at this church, you're not like, no, we don't have that. Like, but we do it here because this is, is something, one, he, he, he tells us to make our faith public, right? Over and over again, make, make your faith public. And then second, what this is, and it's one of the most beautiful things, and we're going to experience it in a minute, is we all get to celebrate together. We get to celebrate what God has done. And we get to join in with heaven as heaven rejoices over the decision that was made. And so, you guys, right now, we're going we're gonna to give you the opportunity to do that. 